Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. John is convinced, having followed Jesus around for three, three and a half years, that there is no more powerful force in the universe than love. We're still trying to decide whether we believe that or not as a culture, as, 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 as individuals, because when love doesn't work for us, we always have a backup plan. And John has no backup plan. If love doesn't work, he recognizes that the world is lost. So he will continually press in on this theme over and over and over again. And you will, in this, over this summer, you'll, you'll, you'll see the text that comes up on the screen. You'll think, didn't we talk about this last week? Or didn't we talk about this a week before? And that is because John, uh, it, it appears that he's going in a circle, saying the same things over and over again. What I hope you'll see is that John is inviting us to spiral more deeply into the depths of God's love. And not just uh, have it as a philosophical category of understanding, but is a real um, uh, force to be reckoned with in the, in, the, in the universe. And in fact, the only hope that the universe uh, has for the kind of life change that we say we want. Um, the reason John is doing this is because he um, is, is seeing his church. He was pastor at a, uh, the, over the churches in Ephesus for a number of years. Now is in, in exile on, on, on Patmos. And uh, seeing um, uh, philosophies and spiritualities start to infect the church uh, in, in a viral kind of way. And he sees where this is going to go. And he wants to um, cut it off at the pass if he can. He wants to address the, um, the, the bad teaching, the heresy, the false prophets, the false teachers, the false doctrines that are beginning to emerge um, in a way that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, didn't even see and so couldn't address. So the Gospel of John is written at the tail end of the first century. 1, 2, and 3 John will be in 1 John today. And the book of Revelation are all written within the last 10 years or so of the, of the end of the first century, where something called Gnosticism is beginning to infect the church. Darren talked about this last week, and I don't want to belabor this point, but it, it is an important kind of backdrop to understanding what John is up to in the, in, in the passage. So bear with me if you wouldn't mind. Gnosticism, again, is a philosophy that arose in Persia about 350, 400 years before Christ. It was a philosophy um, that essentially suggested that matter was evil and spirit was good, that, uh, that therefore the task, the goal, uh, was to, to uh, move through increasing emanations or epochs or archons, any of those words get used, by the possession of secret knowledge so that increasingly you move away from and are disconnected from your body until you become pure spirit and good, right? So this is the, the kind of the guts of it. There's a whole bunch more to it. Uh, but what it, what it again underlines is that matter or nature is evil and spirit, spirituality, supernatural is good. Everybody clear with me on that? So John understands that if we 
Um, if we allow this to infiltrate the Christian teaching, it will not be long before the two key doctrines of Christianity are thrown out with the wash. Specifically, uh, incarnation, in which we have God, who is spirit, becoming flesh, body, and dwelling among us. If, e if flesh is evil, then why would pure spirit ever do that, right? And then the other one, of course, is resurrection, where Jesus is raised from the dead bodily with a physical body suitable to the life after death, but nonetheless a body. Um, and John recognizes that if we make that distinction, if we pull those apart, so now we have pure spirit separated from the matter, from the body, uh, John recognizes both incarnation and resurrection are up for grabs. So this is not tenable for him. Uh, and, and these began to flourish in some, some particularly powerful ways uh, because um, it, 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 it gave us a way to do an end run around behavioral change. The reason is this. If you believe that the body is irrelevant and all that really matters is the spirit, then pretty soon what you do in your body doesn't matter at all as long as you maintain a healthy spirituality. You see where this is going. This is the spirit of our age, wouldn't you say? Right, where people will say things like, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? That's, 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 you, you can't be spiritual without being religious uh, for very long. Sooner or later your spirituality becomes just a, an excuse to do whatever you feel like, right? And it doesn't, it is not anchored in practice, it's not anchored in community, it's not anchored in, in real relationship with other people, let alone with God. It's a, it's a, a self-deceptive spirituality that then self-justifies me doing pretty much anything that I want to do. So, because that's what happens, right? If, if my body and what I do in it doesn't matter, you can see the twin ways that this went. Um, the, one of the ways that Gnosticism worked itself out relative to the body is an extreme asceticism. So the self-abuse uh, uh, of the body, uh, starving it, beating it into submission because it was anchoring the pure spirit that sought to escape. We have to limit the body. We have to crush it through asceticism. That was one of the, one of the approaches, and you can see this in Greek philosophy. But then the other one, uh, was uh, this extreme licentiousness because it said fundamentally what I do in my body doesn't matter to the health of my spirit. So why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Why not just have a good time? Why not just party hardy? Because what I do in my body, what I do with my body doesn't matter. Uh, so so let's, let's go for the gusto because when it's over, and I've escaped the surly bonds of this body, I'm still pure spirit. So what this created was a culture in which people would, um, I'm gonna uh, kind of black and white it here, but, but would, would connect with God, say, in worship on Sundays, right? But then do whatever they felt like on Mondays. And it, and it seemed to be, un, we, did, we, we, we can't make any, because the body doesn't matter. And you can imagine which of the two, extreme asceticism or extreme licentiousness, was the most popular. 
because it's the most popular today. Where we have people who claim uh, a spirituality of devotion to God and worship, but then have no intention whatsoever of letting that influence how they spend their money, how they manage their sexuality, how they treat their neighbor. Do, do you see? And John is recognizing that if this persists, uh, it's going to do serious damage and harm to the church. So he speaks against these, these ideas. And, and just a snapshot, two of them real quickly. The first one is the disconnection between body and spirit, which is what we'll talk about this morning. And the second one is the possession of a superior spirituality marked by increased knowledge. Gnostic to gnosis, the Greek word for gnosis is the word for knowledge. So the way you move from archon to archon is through the possession of knowledge, a secret knowledge, that when you acquire it, it allows you to increasingly move out of your body into increasing realms of superior spirituality, right? So what John is seeing happen is here are these teachers who are proclaiming themselves to be superior in their spirituality because they have this secret knowledge, kind of head patting the poor benighted people who haven't quite clued in that what they do in their body doesn't matter yet. You with me? I hope that doesn't bore you too much, but it's an important point for when we get into the text this morning um, as we think through this. So, so as we look, uh, we're in 1 John chapter 1. If you have Bibles, turn with me there and we'll look at it and read through it together. 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet persist in walking in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim, however, to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful, He is just, He will forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we say that God is a liar, and we thereby declare that His Word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. So whoever says, I know Him, but doesn't do what He commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, Love for God is made complete in them, and that's how we know that we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. This is a pretty powerful passage, uh, but it feels a little convoluted. Anybody get lost on the roller coaster there? It's like, what? It's sin? We got sin everywhere, and what in the world? So I want to just walk through it a paragraph at a time. Hopefully, it'll make sense. And, 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 and it will uh, make some, th some things uh, clear for us as we think through 
how this applies to us. The f- so the first uh, set of verses says, this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, uh, God is light. Uh, here John is picking up on the Gnostic theme. He's taking a page out of their playbook and now uses it against them. Uh, because the belief was God is light. This is not just Gnostic, it's Jewish, it's Christian. You see it as an echo of the story of creation, right? Uh, what's the first thing that God created? He said, let there be light. So, so we have an understanding that God is light. So far, so good. But now what the Gnostics are saying is that if I'm in light, there is no such thing as darkness. What is darkness? Well, John says, in him there is no darkness at all. True. In other words, no evil, no bad. God is light, good. Darkness is bad. With me? The twin things. However, if we claim to have fellowship with God, but persist in walking in the dark, guess what? We lie. And the truth isn't in us. So what he's saying is, if you say that you are in alliance with God, who is in the light, but your behavior demonstrates, in spite of your words, that you are walking in the darkness, it doesn't matter what you say. Your footprints give you away. Do you see what he's saying? Very simply, lifestyle, what you do in the body, matters to the health and destiny of the soul and the spirit. So if we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if on the other hand, we walk in the light, if our behavior is marked by the characteristics of God who is in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. One of the primary markers of the community of love is that we connect with brothers and sisters, that we're not isolated, that we don't separate ourselves by our superior spirituality from the poor riffraff who aren't as enlightened as we are, right? But that we are in community, even with people with whom we may disagree at times, yeah? But we fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So he says, you've got these two ways to live. You can walk in the light, Walk in the darkness, but you can't walk in the darkness and say that you live in the light, because you don't. It's contradictory, all right? Then he goes on this next thing and says, if we claim to be without sin, say we walk in the light, but in fact practice sin in the dark, if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Now this one I want to take just a couple minutes to unpack, because what happens here is that if you believe that what you do in the body doesn't matter, the Gnostic belief, then all of a sudden, all of the self-destructive, damaging things that used to be called sin are no longer a concern for you. You have redefined sin to not include what you're doing. Does that happen? Right? Where we simply change the definition of things so that we're no longer included in it. This is called statistics, if anybody cares. But anyway, I mean, and uh, well, we, have, we have examples of this in our culture, right? Where people want to redefine things that everybody previously knew what they meant. Simple redefinition of a legal matter does not, in fact, change reality. John says, take note, friends, 
in this regard you're doing the same thing. If you say we walk in the light, but are walking in the darkness, you are thereby saying we don't sin. Whatever it is I'm doing that previously was called, not anymore because I'm enlightened now. Right? It doesn't change the fact that you're lying to yourself. The only one you're deceiving is you. And that self-destructive pattern will persist over time uh, and, and sooner or later move you out of the fellowship we talked about with others and so on. So, but if we confess our sins, if we own our stuff, if we bring our journey to the light, if we own what is actually happening and don't define it out of practice for us, then we have hope. Because we bring our sin. Do you notice you've got to own sin in order to confess it? Right? You have to own it. Yes, this is me. I'm, I'm you know, what's the first thing that we do in, in any 12-step program? I got a problem and I'm powerless to do anything about it. Right? If I don't think I have a problem, Jesus is very clear on this. If you don't have ears to hear, guess what? You're not going to hear. So here's what John is saying. If we uh, confess our sins, if we own our stuff, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us our sins, he'll purify us from unrighteousness. On the other hand, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. How does this happen? Well, I don't know how it happens with you, but here's how it happens with me. I have worked out, I'm, I'm a, uh, well, I'll, I've worked out a system whereby as long as I don't do really egregious things, then I can tolerate a certain amount of little things. Anybody else discover my system? <laughs> as long as I'm not a serial killer, I'm okay with hating people. It's not that big a deal. Nobody dies in the making of this movie. You see how we do it? You see how we do it? We'll find ways. Anybody else besides me just brilliant at finding ways to rationalize every stinking thing you do? that is self-destructive. Because let's be clear on this. Sin is not what separates us from God only. That has been dealt with on the cross, the previous verses, right? Sin is what separates us from ourselves. It's self-destructive. It's a form of suicide. And John says, if you want, if you confess, if you want life, if you confess sin, if you own it, then there's hope for you. But if you're continuing in patterns of self-sabotage and don't acknowledge it, there's no hope. We persist in this. And, and, and the fact is, we have a series, we have a range of things that, 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 that as long as we're not doing them, and we always know what they are, usually they're what other people are doing. Right? We've become experts in other people's sins. And as long as we've got a great sinner to hold up, I can feel pretty, as long as I've got a Hitler out there, I can feel pretty good about myself. Does anybody else do this? Or is it just me that does the crazy? No, okay, there's a couple of us, all right. Because we all do this in some form or another, right? We have the hot sins, what I call the hot sins, 
the red sins, the, the big ones, the, the, the blockbuster, the movie-making sins, right? And, 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 and we know who those are people are. Notice what we say. We know who those people are, because that's other people who do that kind of thing. And as, and, and as long as I don't do what those people do, as long as they're a them so I can be an us, I'm, I'm good to go. Here, so so here's, here's, here's Galatians chapter 5. Paul is talking to the church of Galatia, and he, he starts to list the ways of self-sabotage, right? And he says, look, this is what it looks like when the flesh is in charge. Stuff like um, sexual immorality. Yeah, Paul, you get them, right? The Greek word in behind that, by the way, is porneia. Oh. Uh, oh, 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 okay. Um, then impurity. And, and porneia here is not just about pornography, it's about all of the ways of self, sexual self-destruction that we engage in. So adultery and fornication and, and, and um, objectification of other persons for my own sexual satisfaction and on and on and on the list goes, right? Then, then we go down to the list. Uh, impurity. So now, now we're just after, after pleasure without regard uh, to other persons complete. Then debauchery. And these, these are the hot sins, right? We're doing, we're, so far, so far, because most of us have learned how to be polite with regards to these things. It, it, you, know, you, know, you know, for the most part. We, it, we, we'll find ways around it if we need to. I was walking with a, with a, with a, uh, a, a guy the, uh, earlier this month who had finally, after seven years of marriage to somebody else, discovered his soulmate. And it wasn't, of course, the person to whom he was married. And of course, God must want me to pursue relationship with this person who I've discovered is my soulmate. Because after all, well, she's my soulmate. So, so I know that I'm stepping out the bounds of conventional relationships, but that I didn't really mean it when I married her in the first place. Anybody else find ways to justify the self-destruction? Now, it's easy if it's that guy. Right? And so Paul lists these people, and, 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 and these are the red ones, these are the hot sins, right? But then he goes on, and he starts to screw this list up. Hatred. Oh, wait. Discord. Jealousy. Oh, man. Fits of rage. That's my personal favorite. Selfish ambition. Oh, wait, that's, that's bad too? Do you see what he's doing? It doesn't matter if it's a red, a hot sin, or an icy cold blue frozen sin. It's still self-destructive. It's still going to take you out of the game. It's still going to damage your soul and damage the souls of people with whom you're in relationship. So if we say we don't sin, there's no hope for us. Why? Because I'm never going to bring what I can't acknowledge that I have. I'm never going to confess what I can't acknowledge that I do. Do you see? I've found a way to justify self-destruction. I've negotiated peace with the cancer that's eating me alive. That's not a good prospect, John says. And especially when it has this veneer of spiritual superiority that all of a sudden says, God's really kind of okay with this. That's what grace is for. 
No, John says, God is not okay with you blowing yourself up. Cut it out. So he says, if we confess our sins, we've got hope and help. He's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us our sins, he'll purify us from unrighteousness, because if we claim we haven't sinned, we're saying that God is a liar. Which means, truth isn't in us. Okay? And then he finishes up with this, last paragraph. So children, I write you so that what? You won't sin. I want you to stop the patterns of self-destruction. I want you to stop finding ways to justify the damage you're doing to yourself and to others. I want you to stop making excuses. I want you to stop rationalizing. I want you to stop this. Why? Because if you persist in this, no matter what you say about being in the light, you will discover yourself bumping into things in the dark. Right? So, if, we, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. And then look where he goes next. Look where he goes next. There we go. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So he is not just interested, notice, in us not sinning, He's interested in us being righteous. He doesn't want to just get us to zero. He wants us to move to being fully ourselves. Not just avoiding self-destruction. He wants us to emerge as whole persons. Do you see where he's going here? He says, uh, whoever says I know him but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. The truth isn't in that person. Now, John is very aware that along the way, as we learn, as we grow, at any given moment, we might find ourselves on the wrong side of that equation. So what do we do? We own it. Humility is fundamental to identity. I have to own my stuff. I have to bring what I have to the table and not deny that it's an issue. I want to put it before the Lord. Then, then when I do, I'm good to go. I have a father, I have an advocate with the father, I confess my sin, he's faithful, he's just, I forgive him, we're good to go. We deal with it, right? We don't carry it out, right? But if I don't own it, if I don't accept it, then I carry it with me all the time. So here's what he says. Uh, anyone who obeys his word, love for God is made complete, brought to perfection in, uh, perfection in him, and this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, in God, in the light, lives as Jesus did. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? And Paul thinks, John thinks, Jesus thinks, you can do it. It's not about being self-righteous. It's not about a superior spirituality that judges others, right? Because one of the things that we have to be careful about is that uh, John, Jesus, Peter, Paul, all of the guys who write in the New Testament seem to think my judging of your red sins is worse than the red sins that you do. If I've got a log in my eye, I can't help you with the splinter in your eye. It's not that you don't have a splinter in your eye. It's just that I'm not going to be very helpful because I've got a log in mine. What's the log in my eye? Me judging you because you've got a splinter in yours. Do you see how it works? 
So, so he's saying, I, I, we're not going to get there by this self-righteous superiority. We're not going to get there by superior spirituality. We're not going to get there by our truth claims that are not rooted in our life claims. We're going to get there by the imitation of Jesus, not by copying others. We don't want a conformed life. We want a transformed life. That's what we're invited into. And that's what I want to invite you into. As a community, we don't need more people who are experts in other people's sins. So I have to deal not with your stuff, I have to deal with my stuff, right? And, and, and if I have occasion to come alongside you and, and I've discovered that you have stumbled, guess what gives me the right to speak truth to you about the ways that you may have stumbled? that my love for you is so obvious, so clear, so overwhelming that you feel love when confronted with truth. Please notice, truth never makes a way for itself. Love makes way for truth. So when we think about our culture at large, when we think about even people in our own community here who may have very different points of view on things that are happening in our culture, Right? Truth is not helpful if it is not led by love. This is John. This is Jesus. This is Paul. This is Peter. I'm going to vote with them. Do do you see? Because Jesus becomes the marker of how we ought to behave. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.